Please pray with me. Lord, my excitement for this book is overflowing, for it is so good. And I pray, Lord, now that you would open our hearts to understand some important truths. I pray that it would also affect how we live. Lord, would you stir up in each one of us a desire to worship you, for you are so powerful and so good. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus is about worship, not just liberation. And we all want liberation. We all want freedom. But when we think of that, we typically think of just freedom from something. I want freedom from obligations that are placed on me, let's say, as a family man. I want freedom from the burdens of having to go to work. I want freedom from moral restrictions sometimes so that I can indulge the self. But it's freedom from... And what we really need is freedom for. We need to be set free from something for something else. Freedom to become who God has designed us to be. We, we need to be set free to worship him. That's a really important thing. Exodus is about worship. And when the stories um, that, that are made, the movies, the whatever, that have been portrayals of the Exodus, you, you pick up the words, let my people go, Right? But you oftentimes miss what nine or ten times in the text follows that. Let my people go that they may serve me. And they're going to serve God by bringing out sacrifices in the wilderness. That was his plan. It wasn't just liberation for freedom's sake. It was being set free to worship God. That is the overarching theme of the Exodus. That's what it's about. It's about worship. And so, as Curtis and I shared with you on Tuesday night, if you came to the teaching thing or if you want to watch it, it's online, there are, there's a big outline to Exodus, and it's the Passover, getting through the Red Sea, it's getting the law on Mount Sinai, and then it's instructions about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is about God dwelling in the midst of his people who then can worship him. And it's all about how a holy God can be worshiped by sinful people. And even to this day, things about how the Christian church physically is laid out is influenced by Exodus and by how the tabernacle and the temple and all that stuff were set up. We are following a long stream of worshipers of God. So it's about worship. And when you've experienced his salvation, his deliverance, the natural response is worship. So consider what happens a little later in the story. It says in Exodus 14 that thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I'm presuming most of you know the story. The sea opened, Israel passed through it, the Pharaoh's army pursued them, and then God let the sea close up and drowned them. And so the Israel, Israelites, it says they saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. His rescue brought forth worship in Moses and the people of God. And I wonder if that song is your song. Do you say, the Lord is my strength and my salvation? He has rescued me by his might. Is that true of you? And does it bring forth praise and worship? Has he saved you? And what did that look like? How has he saved you? 
Well, today's text gives you some very strong reasons to be a worshiper of God. And the big idea here is that God is greater than Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is a literal, physical, historical person, but Pharaoh is also a type. He's symbolic of the anti-God forces of the world. When you go all the way to the end of the book in Revelation, the end of this whole book, we see Egypt as being spiritualized as the anti-God place. And that's in Revelation chapter 11. And so there are types, there are patterns, there are things being played out. And Pharaoh represents worldliness, human institutions, uh, human efforts to accomplish in human strength what only God ultimately can do. So our, our first uh, text, be- the beginning of uh, chapter one and the beginning of chapter two today, really it sets up the difficulty, the problem, and then it sets up how God is raising up and preparing a deliverer that he's going to use to bring about the exodus. So the first thing I want to say about God being greater than Pharaoh is this, his word is greater. What God declares and promises always comes true. And so right away, the story starts off, and, and keep in mind, this is picking up from Genesis, and it's rolling right through. The, the book and chapter divisions are arbitrary. They're, they're not totally arbitrary, but they're, they're added, imposed onto the text. So it is connected to what has gone before. Through Joseph, Egypt was saved, but the Israelites found their way down into Egypt, as God said would happen. Remember, his word is always true. In Genesis 15, he said, you need to know, Abraham, that your offspring are going to spend four centuries down in Egypt enslaved. This has happened. The story starts with the people down in Egypt multiplying. It says in verse 7, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Remember, the divine... um, imperative on Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. And after the flood, the same thing to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then specific to Abraham, God says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. The word of God always happens. And so he has fulfilled his word here. What started out as one man, Abraham, and his wife has grown to 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes have grown numerous and exceedingly strong in Egypt. God's word comes true. But then there's a a contrary word. There's a competing word, the word of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh looks at this, and like so often happens in human society, there is some perceived threat, and then there's a human plan hatched to stop that threat. We do this all the time in lots of different ways. And there, there are, this, is, this narrative is beautifully written with all sorts of words and language that should make connections. One of them is the way that Pharaoh speaks. So God speaks and it happens. Pharaoh says, come let us, dot, 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 lest. Come let us do such and such, lest such and such will happen. There's a perceived threat, and so let us solve this problem in our strength with this plan. Do you recognize the come let us pattern. Back in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, the people reject God and they say, come let us build a great city and a huge tower and make a name for ourselves, lest we're scattered over the earth. Perceived threat, we're going to be scattered, and so let us solve this problem ourselves. Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh's situation is, they're so numerous, they're going to fight with our enemies and escape. Perceived threat, So let us set taskmasters over them. Let us enslave them. Let us put burdens on them. Treat them harshly. 
Now, his plan, of course, is to try to stop them from reproducing. Like, like their lives are going to be so hard that they won't have children anymore. It's a terrible plan, and it doesn't work. They multiply anyway. In fact, in fact as the pressure is put on them, they, they grow even more and more and more. And so he comes up with the second attempt. He says, well, we'll get the midwives. These are Hebrew women who typically don't have children of their own. And so they are all, they're very much pro-life. They want to encourage children. And so they serve as midwives. And he says, let's get the Hebrew midwives to commit murder on the baby boys when they see and do it kind of in a clandestine way. This is the plan, right? Like those, those wicked midwives are going to conspire with this Pharaoh to murder baby boys. It doesn't work. It says they feared God and they tell a lie to Pharaoh. And because they fear God, God actually gives them families of their own. That's what it tells us in the text. So his plan B doesn't work, so he goes to plan C. We're going to make everyone, all of Egypt, throw all the baby boys into the river. That's the plan of how we're going to stop the perceived threat. This is the word of Pharaoh. But a mom and a sister have a plan to spare one, and God is going to work through them to raise up a deliverer. Now, I'm not sure how many babies actually die this way, because it's interesting, when you get to Genesis 12, 37, 600,000 males plus women and children are let out. And if all of Egypt has been killing all the baby boys, there would not be more than a half a million males. But we're starting to get into the, the sticky wickets of the details, and I want to keep it up here at the level of God's greatness. So God's word is greater. And then we learn something else about why God is so great. God's so strong and great that he is able to display his strength through what is perceived as weak in the world. The, the hero of this chapter, of these two chapters, they're the women. The women, the midwives, a little, a, 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 an older sister, but a little girl. These are the heroes of this story. Women who had less power and rights in society, God chooses to really shame uh, Pharaoh to show how weak he is and to show how strong God is. And God always favors the marginalized, the weak, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner among us, the outcast, the poor. This is where the kingdom of God always works. So that does say something to those of us that have strength and power and resources and whatever. If you want to side with God, side with the weak and marginalized. That's how God always works. He works through what is weak to display his strength. So consider, in this narrative, Pharaoh is never named. He's just flavor of the month Pharaoh. Fill in the blank. We, scholars have debated which Pharaoh this is, and we talked a little bit about it Tuesday night. We don't know. We don't know. The, and history seems to have lost it. And I think that's part of the design. It's like, Pharaoh who? But you know, what, you know who is named in here? Two women, two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. They're eternally named in the word of God, which will stand forever, these two women because they fear God and not Pharaoh, and they're willing to stand up to the power of their day and honor God rather than the command. It's, it's civil disobedience at its finest. And Pharaoh gets, he goes unnamed in here. Now, um, it's interesting how they avoid punishment. They come up with this lie that appeals to the racist tendencies of this Pharaoh who's trying to commit genocide. They say, oh, those Hebrew women they're not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before we even get there. Now, it's a ridiculous lie, and the word, but, but it plays to his racism. The word for vigorous is connected to the word for animal. 
oh, those Hebrew women are like animals. They just have babies so fast we can't even get there and kill those boys. That's the lie. And because of his racist bias, he's blind to it and he lets them go. He believes it. He's, he's, the author here is making him look like a fool because he's trying to play God and there can only be one God in this universe. And he's being shown up. God is greater than Pharaoh. His word comes true and God's strength is displayed through weakness. What's more, I mean, it's just fantastic how this is gonna play out. Not only is God gonna raise up a deliverer, but he's gonna do it in your very household and you're gonna pay for it, Pharaoh. So the next, the next plan to kill the baby boys results in this boy being put in a basket and floated down where the women bathe and Pharaoh's daughter comes down, and you know the story, and, and she sees this baby and has compassion on him. He's crying. And of course, the sister runs over and says, would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you, your new baby you just found? And she says, yes, go do this, and I will pay you your wages. And what happens here is God uses this scenario to place Moses, his deliverer, in the perfect system where he's got some Hebrew roots. He's been nursed and weaned by a Hebrew mother, but then he's got a name that will work in either the Hebrew or the Egyptian house, like Mos, like Tutmos. Mos is part of a lot of Hebrew names, but it also means in Hebrew, drawn from the water. He'll be raised in the best education, be able to speak the Egyptian, and when the time comes, he will be perfectly positioned to lead God's people out and to upend Pharaoh. God's strength is displayed through human weakness. He can do stuff like that because he's God and Pharaoh is not. So his word always comes true and he works through weakness. And now there's something in here that is brilliantly narrated and that is the fact that God seems quiet and there's a lot of suffering that goes unaddressed for a very long time. Keep in mind that when this happens, when this Pharaoh starts to oppress the people, Moses is born, he's a baby, and the deliverance doesn't come until about 80 years later. When he's 40, he has to flee into the wilderness, and then God works on his character out there to make him the most humble man on the earth, it tells us, and then he sends him back. So there's 80 years of this harsh taskmaster slavery situation, and the people are going, God, where are you? Now, that is the human situation, and I know some of your stories, you've got pain, and you're wondering, God, where are you? And one of the things that helps about the scriptures is we get to see how God worked in other people's pain from God's vantage point over multiple centuries. You know, in 80 years of slavery, there were some Hebrews that were born slaves their entire lives and died before they saw deliverance, and they didn't get to see the big picture. And the Bible helps us get the big picture. Paul in the New Testament says, these slight momentary afflictions are actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's not worth comparing. You need a bigger perspective to see that. God's making the long play here. It's not just in one person's life, but it's in, over the centuries. It was 400 years that they were in Egypt. It was 80 years of hard slavery before the deliverance happens. So, you know, we just usually don't have God's view in mind. When something hard happens, we go, God, where are you? Why are you not fixing my problem? But what the scriptures show us is that God is good, and he loves you, and he's got the big picture in mind, and the scriptures are inviting you to trust him in it, even when he doesn't answer your prayer the way you want him to answer it. This is a hard teaching of the Bible, but it's so central. It's very important to learn. And I know that sounds cheap for me when I'm not going through the cancer you're going through or suffering the grief you're in or whatever it might be. I'm aware that my time will come to. This life is hard, but God is good. Remember that. He's good. 
So we see that his word always is fulfilled. We see that he works to bring and display his strength through weakness. And we see that God works through bad things to bring about good. We learned that in Genesis with Joseph, right? He's enslaved all those years. And then finally, he says, you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good, the saving of many people. That's why Joseph was sent to Egypt. He just had to go through a lot of bad to get to that good thing. We have a God who does this. He takes what is bad and he brings about good. Now, the pharaohs of our lives, those external things that want to play God, that's an external problem and that's not enough. That's not enough. We need, we need an internal plot problem solved too. Keep in mind, when we read through this story, you'll find that these, these million Israelites come through the Red Sea into the desert and they're three days in the desert, three days out from seeing miraculous God miraculously deliver them. And what do they do? They start grumbling against God and Moses and complaining. See, that's not a Pharaoh problem. That's a heart problem. That's an internal problem. And that problem exists today in us. We have a heart problem. Now, in Exodus, we have a pattern, a type. God's pattern replays because it's the same God from cover to cover of this book. So we see patterns play out here. It's very interesting um, how the water is central throughout the whole Bible. Water is seen as chaotic. It's symbolic of evil, of the, the depths, the dark places. And, you know, when we do baptisms, our liturgy, how we worship is influenced by what God has done in, in ancient days and more recent days. I think it's interesting that in the baptism service, we say this, we thank you, almighty God, for the gift of water. Over it, your Holy Spirit moved in the beginning of creation. Through it, you led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt into the land of promise. And in it, your son Jesus received the baptism of John in the river Jordan when the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. And then what does Jesus say when he teaches about water? Out of you will flow streams of living water, referring to the Holy Spirit that he's going to pour out on Pentecost into his church. What is seen as chaotic and evil now is becoming a river of life. God is working through these patterns because we need not just an external salvation from a pharaoh or some bondage. We need an internal salvation from our bondage to sin to our broken hearts that are curved in on themselves. And so Pharaoh is not enough. Sin is really the target. Sin, Satan, evil, worldly systems, these big things. The patterns are, are echoed in the New Testament authors. So in Hosea 11.1, 1, the Old Testament prophet says of Israel, out of Egypt I have called my son. God refers to Israel as his son. Then Matthew picks this up when Jesus' childhood story is told out of Egypt, I've called my son. The parallels are uncanny. Moses has a situation where a, a tyrant, Pharaoh, is trying to kill baby boys in Egypt, and a faithful woman, woman or multiple women, are used to deliver him. In Jesus' day, Herod, a tyrant, tries to kill baby boys because of a perceived threat, and he goes to Egypt with a faithful woman and her fiance, and God delivers him. The parallels there are crazy. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come and talk to him about his exodus. In Greek, it's actually that word. Jesus' exodus was the perfect fulfillment of the exodus that we're talking about. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus began with Moses talking to Cleopas and his, and his friend about how all the things are fulfilled in Jesus. See how the scriptures all tie together? You know, I, I, I have so much more material. I, I'm exercising huge constraint right now. 
Personal restraint, self-control in the spirit. I thought of that intersection up in Riverside, five points where five roads come in and there's like a little concrete thing in the middle. I hate driving there at traffic time because you never know whose turn it is to go. All of these things are going through Exodus. It's like the major motif for the entire Bible. And it's fulfilled entirely in Christ. And the big idea is this. God is greater than Pharaoh. So worship him because Exodus is about worship. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful for your salvation. I thank you that we live in this era where we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We get to see the old covenant and the new. And we have your spirit poured out upon us. Lord, help us remember. Help us remember who you are. Or give us the courage to put down those pharaohs in our lives, those things that would rival you, and give our entire hearts to you and worship you, for you alone are worthy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.